This morning, I'd like to look at our original, original great-great-grandfather. And who would that be? Someone under 20. Who's our original great-great-grandfather? All right. Come on, Link. Everyone here, come on. His name was Jedediah Tucker. <laughs> now, who was it? Come on, it was Adam, right? We could say it was Noah, because we all come from Noah as well. But I'd like to talk about Adam. And uh, Adam's, in, to me, a really interesting character. When we think of Adam, we think of, of course, that man that was formed by the hand of God. We think of that man that uh, had it all. And we think of that man that lost it all, don't we? How that foolishly, he, he defied God and uh, just ruined things for all of us. And that is a very simplistic way of looking at it. But you know what? The more I, the more I study, and, and it wasn't just this week, but for the past few months, I've been thinking on things about this man, Adam. And you know, the story of Adam is found where, Desmond? Where's the story of Adam found? Revelations? Genesis? Excellent. Excellent. And it's really confined to Genesis until we get to the New Testament. And then we pick him up again in the book of Romans, chapter 5, and in 1 Corinthians. And it, and it refers to Adam as the first Adam. But then it goes on to tell us that there's a, a last Adam. And how through Adam all die, through one man sin came into the world, and death by sin, for that all have sinned. But we have that beautiful promise that by the obedience of one man, we have, he has brought many sons to righteousness. Now in the Old Testament, you never read about a second Adam coming. You never read about a last Adam coming. You do read about the Messiah. But we really weren't able to put together the completion. You know, if you read commentaries, you, you read these terms which are kind of confusing. Adam was our federal head. Which I really don't know what federal means other than, <laughs> other than it has something to do with like a central government. So we're, we're all responsible to our local and state governments in an area, but the whole country is responsible to the federal government. So it's the one that everyone looks to, I guess. So when you think of him as your federal head, it's every one of us, whatever, uh, whatever century we come from, whatever continent we come from, whatever tongue we speak, we can all look back to him as our original father, as our original uh, model, the one we're patterned after. So in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to this man, Adam. And of course, in the week of creation, I don't want to go into creation really in detail, but I do want to look at just a few points. And if you look in chapter 1, uh, on each of the days of the creation, God said, let there be light in chapter 3. I mean, in verse 3. And in verse 4, it says, and God saw the light that it was good. In verse 6, he says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, it says, let the waters under the heaven be gathered under one place. In verse 10, it says, God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth bring forth grass. And in verse 12, it says, and God saw that it was good. In verse 14, he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. 
And in verse 18, it says, and God saw that it was good. Verse 20 says, God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly. Verse 21 says, and God saw that it was good. 24 says, let the earth bring forth a living creature. And 25 says, and God saw that it was good. But in, in verse 26, he's, each of these verses says, let the waters be. Let there be light. As if it was by the will of God that these are made. But in verse 26, God changes the tone. He's already made the earth and the sky and the water, the sun, the moon, the stars, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all of the flowering trees, plants, grasses. All life on the earth is created by the word of his power, let there be. But at, in this, the end of the sixth day, he said, let us make man. So we see here that there is something different about this creation, isn't there? He wasn't put in the middle of creation week so that we could claim that we had something to do with the, fin the finality of creation, that we had some contribution to make, but we were the final act of creation, weren't we? Mankind, the final act of creation. Not just by a word of power, by royal fiat, but by an act of will where the eternal Godhead, the triune Godhead said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let him have dominion. We won't go into a lot of detail here. But at the end of that creation, he changes it from, and, it was, and God saw that it was good. And uh, at the end of this, he says in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So we see that here in the culmination of his creation, he made man and he made him in the likeness and image of himself. I don't know what you think uh, or what you've been taught. I know, I know that I have a very active imagination. And I know that I like to read a chapter. And I know Magdi does as well as he's shaking his head. <laughs> I like to read a story, read a chapter. And I like to look beyond uh, the words because... And, you know, here in just a matter of a page and a half, we have the creation of the world. Do we have every detail? Of course not. Do we have uh, many details? Very few. But I think through a study of scripture and through perhaps some inspired imagination, we can, we can consider things that we might not otherwise consider. The Lord said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Some, myself included, in my youth and in my early years, always thought that the Lord Jesus, when he was given a body 2,000 years ago, when he was brought into this world, that body had to be fashioned like its predecessors, like, the, like Noah, like Adam, like the fathers, like the patriarchs. The Lord Jesus had to take upon himself a body like unto their body. But I think through study of scripture and through an understanding, it is quite the reverse. That Adam was given a body modeled and fashioned after that eternal body of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The scripture tells us that the lamb was slain. The Lord Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Therefore, he had to have a body before the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus, God the Father, the Spirit, is not confined, of course, to our timeline and to our plane of existence. So this eternal body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I believe was from the beginning, before the beginning, and is the same body that we will see in heaven, only bearing wounds that it didn't have at this time. That that body is the body that walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. Not as a hovering spirit, and not as a voice, disembodied voice, and not as an essence, but as a true physical form that could commune with his creation. I would have a hard time interacting with uh, the great Oz, wouldn't you? But if I could interact with someone who shared my senses and shared my image to some degree, there is a kinship, isn't there? And so the Lord said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And some people say, well, this simply means that uh, man was made as a tripartite being, body, soul, and spirit. God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. That's what it means. I, I strongly disagree. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ is essential for many things. It is essential that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ be like our body, that he might be our kinsman redeemer, not an alien, not some strange thing, but he must be like unto us. It is essential that he have that body after which he can fashion us. It is that body that we will bow to in eternity. He took upon him uh, the image and the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that he was like him in physical appearance. I don't want to be blasphemous or heretical, but I think, I feel, that the man Adam and the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore an uncanny resemblance one to another. I believe that. I don't believe one was blonde and one was brunette, one was blue-eyed and one was brown-eyed. I believe that they were alike. Identical twin, perhaps not, but I believe that they were very similar because Adam was formed after the image of God. Not only did he receive this body from the Creator, Adam received this body. It was a body that was made not by just a word, but this was a body formed by the very hand of the Creator. It says he took the dust of the earth, not in some invisible metaphysical way, but in his very own hands, and he formed man. Before the creation was all done by the word of his power, he showed the authority of the creator, his unspeakable power and majesty. But in the creation of man, we see something more. We see the affection of the creator and how that the creator touched that man and formed him from the dust of the earth. Unique in all of creation. This man, once he was formed, received the very breath 
of his creator into his nostrils. You know the word, the word that we get our word breath from, from the Latin, is the same word that we get the word spirit from as well. You know, we talk about respiration, the spirit. When God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he breathed into him his own spirit. And it says, and Adam became a living soul. It wasn't said of that of any of the other creation, not of the mammals, not of the fish, not of the birds, not of the trees. And though you may love animals dearly, my friend, they do not have the breath of God in them. He cares for them deeply, but they weren't made a living soul like Adam and Eve were. And so he was made in a physical body which speaks of his place on earth and yet he was made a living soul, which speaks of his eternal home in the heavenlies. No other creation is like this. And he was formed, and it says, and they were naked and were not ashamed. No clothes necessary. At the risk of being heretical again, I'm one of those that believes that Adam, and when his wife was made, were clothed in a, in a glowing glory, in a glory that God gave to them that perhaps was a, you know, a golden burst of, uh, of an aura, uh, something. But I think they were clothed in, in that way. And I think when we see the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says, and he was brighter than the noonday sun. His clothes were glistering. It was because God allowed him and allowed the disciples to see him in his pre-incarnate glory, the glory given him by the Father. That glory we read is, was veiled when he walked the earth, as if that the dimmer switch had to be turned down, for we could not behold him as he was. And I believe that Adam was given that same glorious, from the very hand of God who formed him from the dust of the earth, where he could walk through the garden and feel clad. Every other Every other animal around him had its fur or its shell or its feathers or its scales. And here he was and felt, he did not feel like the naked ape that we read about you know, from, the, from the anthropologists. He felt that he was clothed in what God gave him. If you dispute me, talk to me afterwards. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> but I do believe this. I believe he was given this as a gift that made him like unto his creator. And when they walked together in the cool of the day, I can imagine seeing the two glowing figures in the shade of the trees of the garden. It says also that he was made in the likeness of God, not only in his physical image, but also in his likeness. <clears throat> you could say that in his, in his nature, not his physical appearance, but his nature, he had within him something that had an affinity for God. The unredeemed sinner has a fear of God, don't they? If you haven't been born again, if you don't have the assurance that you are now a child of God and have eternity waiting for you, thanks only to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a fear of God. You have you have a, a, a feeling perhaps of alienation from God, that there is no way that you can ever be reconciled to God. 
There may, may be that uh, delusion that you can make yourself acceptable to God, but you recognize that you are not, you're not up to the task of being brought before God. In his nature, in his constitution, I believe, was that affinity for God, that natural, that natural kinship, that natural esteem, that natural desire to be forever with his creator. No fear of him. Respect, yes. But fear and loathing and dread and none of that would have been in him. And in the likeness of God, God had authority over all creation, and yet he gave to Adam authority. He says, and to, to, that, to him I will give dominion over all the earth, all the living things of the earth. And with that, it would be authority. Not that he was to lord it over them, but that he was definitely to be above the creation of this. This was an authority given to him by, by God. Uh, authority is something that is, um, can only be given from the creator and, and bears a likeness to the creator. He was in the likeness of God in that in his original state, he was pure and he was righteous. He was without sin. He was without flaw. We read of creation how there was never sickness or death in original creation. Every cell in his body reverberated with life because he was made a living spirit. I'm afraid that when we're born, you know, we're going to grow. We're going to um, get, you know, get ed educated. I'm looking at Sadie back there. But in reality, we were born a dying being. Not dead, but dying. And if you've studied uh, biology or microbiology, you know that uh, the damage done to cells minute by minute, day to day, is irreversible. And uh, we are without hope, my friend. But this man, Adam, was built, was constructed, was formed lovingly by a God who intended for him to learn, live eternally with him. But he was, he was made in the likeness of God in that he was pure without sin and was righteous in the eyes of God. And perhaps the governing of himself, because we didn't discuss this, but God created him also with free will. And it was perhaps more of a picture of the likeness of God that he relied on this to govern himself. A quote that I read was, uh, was that the, governor, the governing of himself by his own free will required more of God's likeness than in governing the garden. Governing the garden, a garden that was made perfect, you could say it was a self-sustaining and self-running operation. But to govern his own will, to govern his own mind, his own thoughts and his own desire, that required uh, more of God's likeness. And then we read shortly thereafter, but for Adam there was not found a helpmeet. Adam was put in this garden, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you know, uh, I, have, uh, I have 
active imagination, I think of the Garden of Eden. You know, four, four rivers flowing out of it with funny names that watered the garden, never rained. Every evening up came a dew from the ground and watered the garden. Nothing died. He didn't have to kill a plant or an animal to eat it. The fruit would fall off at the touch of his hand. And I know that the garden didn't cover the whole earth, but I'm sure it was a massive garden, an amazing garden. I don't know if it was ringed about by hills or perhaps it was just too big for them to even consider looking for the, for the borders of it. But imagine the most beautiful grove or glade you've ever been in. And remember that that wouldn't be allowed anywhere near that garden because it's too imperfect, it's too sick, it's too blighted. And there in that garden, rivers, riversides flowing with crystal clear water and fish of beauty, beautiful colors and hues lined by flower beds on either side, trees each more beautiful than the next, towering, giving their shade and giving their fruit to him. And between it was roaming the animal life. And through a grove he would wander and then open into a gorgeous meadow, a gorgeous glade. And he'd walk a little farther and there in the middle of the garden were planted two trees two special trees. Now I imagine that in this garden we're somewhere in the neighborhood of billions of trees. None of them were fruitless. Every one a fruit-giving tree, whether it be nuts or berries or fruits or what, what have you. Uh, all of which were incredibly delicious. And yet there was one tree in the middle of the garden and it was called the tree of life. God said, you need to eat of this tree. And I think there was something about the fruit of that tree that would bring Adam and Eve back again and again. They might wander and eat these other delicious fruits. But you know when your body uh, is like low on sodium, you crave something salty. When you're dehydrated, you crave water. I think there would be a point, you know, that they had that craving for that fruit from the tree of life. But near that tree of life was another tree, and I think it was an equally beautiful tree, and also bore beautiful fruit. And it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God showed both of these trees to Adam, and he says, this tree here you eat of and you live. This tree here, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And it had beautiful fruit on it. And there were the two trees. One a gift, one proscribed, one. And we often say, well, why did God put that there? And the common answer is, well, if you, you would hardly be a creature of free will if you didn't have the option to sin. Well, I've thought, and you may think as well, that the one, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, really are like two in one. You think of the uh, sacrifice of the scapegoat 
it was two goats, right? One lived, one died, but it was considered one sacrifice. One was taken in to the altar and was burnt holy, and the other was released into the wilderness. Both parts had to be kept, and it was considered one sacrifice. In this, the two trees together, equally beautiful, out of a billion or more trees, God says, I reserve that one for me. The other 999,999,999, they're for you. They are for you in all the best ways, delicious, nutritious, the trees of pleasure. They're going to give you shade. They're going to give you sustenance. They're going to be shelter for the birds. But this one, I reserve for myself. Of this one, you eat and live. Of this one, do not eat and live. It wasn't like eat and live, eat and die. Eat and live, do not eat and live. And God reserved to himself that, that authority. He had given some authority to Adam, hadn't he? Authority and dominion over the world. But he reserved that authority for him. I'm never going to finish this if I don't speed up. Adam's in that garden, and he wanders that garden, and he notices that the deer and the, uh, and the antelope and the buffalo all have paired off, haven't they? They all have their, their mate. And he never asked God for a, a mate, did he? Read this chapter, you'll see, he never asked God for a mate. He was content with the presence, to be in the presence of God and in this creation. He didn't ask for a mate. But the Lord said, but for Adam there was not found a helpmeet. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. And so we know the story. He put Adam in a deep sleep. He opened up his side. He took forth part of a rib. And he formed with his hands, just as he had Adam, a helpmeet. The only difference between him, uh, her and Adam were that she was female, he was male. It is said, I read somewhere, it says, well, women are better in that Adam came from the dust of the earth and was refined. But Eve came from the refined man. So she's double refined. I read, <laughs> I think that's insane. Absolutely not. <laughs> so it was the, the Lord we see desired a bride for Adam, more so than Adam did. It was the Lord that desired this bride for Adam. And then when he made Eve, I just consider, the, you know, I don't consider these all the time, but they, when they popped ahead, I try to remember them. He could have made two Eves, or three, or ten. He could have given Adam a choice of any or all. But then it wouldn't have been paradise, would it? <laughs> he had for Adam one bride and one only. A bride created by the very hand of the creator, by God. You think Adam looked at Eve? Oh, the joke is, he said, whoa, man. And that's how she got her name, woman. Uh, the <laughs> you think he looked at Eve and said, I'd have preferred a redhead. No. You think he looked at Eve and said, she's got kind of funny ears. No. Eve was perfection. And Adam looked at Eve and said, 
yes. <laughs> Lord, you are too good to me. And he made a bride for her that was perfect for him in every way. She was clothed the same way he was in the glory that God gave him. And it was not his intention that he grow tired of her and look for another or add another or stray from him, uh, stray, stray from her and look for another. Young men, young women, do you believe that God has desires a perfect bride for you or a perfect groom for you? Do you believe it? Are you willing to wait for it? You may look around and say, that might be the one God wants for me. I'll give it a try. Or you might say, uh, maybe God doesn't, has forgotten me, and I, I'm going to look myself. Are you willing to wait for the perfect one? Adam got the perfect one because it was provided by God. Do you think God has a mate for you in mind if, you're, if you are destined or if you are willed to be married? Do you believe it? If you believe it, you wait for it. Adam waited, and he got his perfect match. Um, then we get to the story of the fall. Adam and Eve, I think, never parted each other's side. I think that they wandered together the garden, they explored the garden, they named the animals, they, they became the greatest zoologists and botanists and ornithologists that ever lived, that they knew their animals, they knew their plants, they knew the ecosystem. And yet one day she was off by herself. And we know the story of the temptation. We're not going to go into that. Adam comes up to her and says, what have you done? And she says, I took of the fruit. Now, another thing that comes to my mind about Adam is that Adam was no dummy. Adam was created not through a thousand generations of genetic mutation and degradation, the effects, cumulative effects of sin and of disease, pollution. I, I've said before that I believe that our generation are the slow class of creation. I believe that the generations before the flood were you look at their lifespans. Adam lived to be 930, 930 years, Methuselah 969. Their bodies were unravaged by the effects, the accumulative effects of sin. Their minds were created in perfection. I believe Adam was the most brilliant man that ever walked the earth, wiser even than Solomon. That his knowledge, not only of creation, but of the creator, surpassed any of our wildest dreams. That his understanding of God's will and God's plan was complete. And I believe when that woman took the fruit and he weighed his two options, one option would have been to back away in shocked disbelief and watch as God banished the woman from the garden so that he could maintain his place in paradise. 
He could maintain that life of ease and privilege and authority that he'd been given. That was a true option. And he could have bid his wife farewell as the Lord expelled her from the garden. He would have considered, was there any way that he could redeem what she had done? Could, was there anything he could do to undo what she had done? And in his will, wisdom, he understood that there was no way. He did not have the authority, that authority, he did not have that creatorial power to recreate what had been broken and wounded in the heart of his wife. He could probably already see that the light had gone out. Her glory had been lost. And weighing the options and knowing the consequences, I believe that in all respect to his love of the Father, he chose his wife. He knew that that wife, that woman whom he loved, whom he would not have changed a thing about, whom he had felt bound to on a, on a spiritual level as well as a physical, that that woman, he couldn't part from her. My, my creator, my Lord made her for me. And I'm willing to face death to be with her. I'm willing to face death that her and I might continue to have a relationship. And then the Lord, of course, says, Adam, where art thou? And he says, uh, I'm over here and I'm hiding because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Well, isn't it obvious? The light of God's glory had gone out. That state of perfection and righteousness that they enjoyed was gone. The seed of sin was already, that worm of sin was already creeping in and destroying them. And he chose his wife. Now we can look at more aspects of him, but we've got to work our way toward the end. In Romans chapter 5, we read that there is another Adam. And we know that Adam is taught to us as a type of Christ. Not, not the most perfect type, because we see, we see failure, we see sin. Uh, but let's look at some things that they have that we can look at in common. While Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, we read that the Lord Jesus took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. We read in the scripture, the sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared. A body was prepared for the Lord Jesus before the foundation of the world. We read that Adam received the breath of God. And we know that the Lord Jesus breathed his last on the cross. He gave his last breath there on the tree. We know that that breath that God gave to Adam, the Lord Jesus, when he expires on the tree, he breathes into the nostrils of his creation, his Holy Spirit. And they share that. We read that Adam was made a living soul 
But we read in the New Testament that the last Adam was made a quickening spirit or a life-giving spirit. Adam may have been made a living soul, exuding life, brimming with life, overflowing with life, but incapable of giving life. The Lord Jesus was made a life-giving spirit. So he's greater than the first Adam. Adam was created naked yet unashamed. Our Lord Jesus is despised and rejected. We read that he endured the cross despising the shame. And don't delude yourself that these portraits of the Lord Jesus on the cross with the loincloth are accurate. They were crucified naked. The Lord Jesus was naked and ashamed. In the likeness of God, Adam was created with that sense of purity and rectitude, righteousness and holiness of a pure creation of the Lord Jesus, uh, of pure creation of God. But the Lord Jesus laid his glory by. He subjected himself to his father's will and became a servant. He was sinless and he became sin for us. We'll look at Adam And we see that for Adam there was not found a helpmeet, but the Lord desired a bride for him. And so the Lord desires a bride for himself. And he desires that bride that he might have the intimacy of, of unbroken communion and love. And not only that, but a fruitfulness. A loving couple is fruitful. The scripture says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. In the scripture we read, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. God the Father seeks a bride for his son. In the Revelation we read, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife, purchased with his own blood. From Adam's side came the rib from which Eve was created. From the Lord Jesus' wounded side, God drew forth a bride, didn't he? From that side that was opened up. Do you think it would be a coincidence if the very side of of Adam's chest where where the rib was drawn forth would be the same point that the spirit would enter? I don't think it would be coincidence. As Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The Lord Jesus, from his own flesh, looks upon his bride, the church, and calls it bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, I, I, I hypothesize that Adam esteemed his own wife so highly that he'd never considered giving her up and watching her being expelled from the garden. He esteemed his bride to be equal with himself. He, He esteemed her to such a point that if he lost her, then he would lose half of himself. He esteemed his bride above himself. And the Lord Jesus 
esteems his bride. So that he would not be willing to expel this bride prepared by his father and give, them, and give that bride up to judgment and the righteous punishment for their sin, but rather would join that bride in earth, on earth, and unlike Adam, be able to take the place to redeem that bride. Adam, could, he, it went through his mind, is there anything I can do? No. Only the Lord Jesus could say, prepare me a body. I will redeem my bride with my own blood. You know, Adam was driven from the garden ultimately with, with Eve. And that communion with his Lord was broken. No more walks in the cool of the day. No more comforting words. No more touch of the hand of his Lord. You might wonder if Adam ever uttered the words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But I think he was wiser than that. He would never utter those words. But the last Adam did, didn't he? Just as Adam was expelled from the garden in the presence of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, when he became sin for me, God the Father had to turn his back on him. He couldn't look upon that. He could no longer look at Adam and his sin. He could no longer look at his own son bearing my sin. Oh, he esteemed his bride better than himself. We're out of time, but a final thought that I have is that I think there's this uncanny resemblance between the first and the last Adam. I think they were the same height. They were the same size, same hair, same... I think... I think when we get to heaven, we're going to look at Father Adam and do a double take. And we say, boy, he looks, he looks just like the Lord. Except for one thing. There's not a scratch on Adam. He enjoys the beauties of heaven, unmarred and unscarred. But the second Adam marred eternally. We read of the lamb who was found worthy because he was slain. And he's spoken of as a lamb that was freshly slain. Our Lord Jesus Christ is going to bear the scars on his head, on his back, on his hands and on his feet and in his side for eternity. And that man that was fashioned after him is flawless. And we will be flawless because he bears our wounds. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What a savior we have. He esteemed us so highly that he would leave his place in heaven, his authority, lay it aside and come to his bride and bear her sins in his own body on the tree. 
to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then praise the Lord, he finished with his last breath saying, it is finished. Oh, what a savior we have. The last Adam who gave all for us. How can we help but praise him? Was there ever love like this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, this morning we pray that we've seen a fresh look of thy son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we think of what he's done for us, what he has become, what he has left, and the image he bears now, that of a lamb freshly slain. Oh, Father, how he longs to bring us to his side, to embrace us in the intimacy of the, of the bride to the bridegroom. Oh, Father, we long for that day. Father, we thank thee for thy son. We pray that we would honor him in these our last days. Oh, we long to see him. Father, come soon. Thank thee for these in his name. Amen.